This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is up, Wildcatters? Thank you for tuning in to another episode. This week, we had a return guest. John Ludwig with Novi joined us again to talk about how they have pivoted to adapt to the new environment of the industry. But really quickly, before we get into the episode, everyone in the oil field knows how important safety is, yet there hasn't been much innovation in this space. It's 2020 and safety operations are still documented with pen and paper, and they're sent over email. This causes delays in the HSC director's response time and creates risk for all employees involved. And that's why iScout has built a customizable safety platform that allows teams to leverage innovative technology and increase operational efficiency in the workplace. You can build custom safety reports where users can input information from any location, set up alert notifications, track employee training, keep an eye on inspection history of equipment, and many other features. The best part is iScout has made an affordable solution with pricing starting at just $99 per month for 10 users. On top of that, there's no long-term contract commitment. If you're looking to increase the safety of your operations while driving down cost, make sure to check out iScout at iScout.com or find the link in the show notes below. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. This feels weird because we haven't recorded in like a month and a half, so I almost completely forgot how to do an intro. Well, we've been shut down with COVID. COVID's, COVID's got the, the world on lockdown. We're socially distanced for this podcast. We've got good separation between us. We're at least four and a half feet apart. We're wearing masks. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got John. Welcome back. John uh, Ludwig with Novi Labs or Novi, depending on how you guys want to uh, identify, right? Either way is good. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a uh, second time on. Yep. You, you reminded me that you are our first uh, video podcast that we'd done back in the day. So have a little bit of history with you. You got to be the, the first guest on the video. Um, John, tell us a little bit about, you know, the last time that you guys were on, had a great conversation. You know, let's give a recap into kind of about you a little bit what you guys are doing at Novi and then we'll roll into how you guys have pivoted and kind of changed up your business model a little bit. Yeah. So a little history on myself. I, uh, uh, started Novi back in 2015. Uh, we, the, the idea originally came from when I worked in the industry. So I worked at Hess corporation. Uh, we were looking at using data, using more data and using analytics specifically to help optimize uh, engineering decision decisions in the, uh, in their Williston asset. Uh, so started there. Uh, they actually became, uh, Novi's first customer, which is great. Uh, we got to, we worked with them for, for years and years. Um, and they're off and running on their own now. So they're, they're doing really well and, and they gave us our start. So that's great for, great for us. Um, I got so, a question for you. When you were working at Hess, is it common knowledge at Hess that, um, he also owned the New York jets, the football team? Is that common knowledge? I, I, I certainly knew that, but, but I'm, <laughs> I, I grew up in the Northeast. So like I, I, oh, okay. I knew who Leon Hess was you yeah. know? <laughs> and I knew the gas stations, right? A lot of people down here have never seen yeah, uh, we don't have Hess, Hess gas, gas stations, stations down here. Yeah. yeah. Now they're gone. They're, they're all, they've been sold off. We're so. doing a, we're doing a video on oil men that started the NFL teams because a lot of people don't know how much of the NFL, um, how it looks today was started by oil men. Yeah. And, uh, and it's funny Jake. how so much of it came out of like the Dallas area between Hess and then the Hunt family as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I told, I told Jake, I said, yeah, the only reason I knew that Hess owned the Jets is because Hess and the Jets have the same, same color. So 
it's interesting. I didn't know if like that was like well known knowledge well, yet. Since we're on, since we're on the not well known topic, uh, the <laughs> the one interesting factoid: the uh, Hess office in New York has one hundred percent green carpet. The entire it's wall to wall. Yeah, that yeah. shade of green. That shade of green, that dark green color, just like the Jets uniforms. It's all at the all of the floors in the, in the Hess building. So like that's, that's so obnoxious. Even that's, today. <laughs> I don't know about today. I haven't been there in a long time, but okay. I, I remember the first time I went there and I'm like, wow, that this entire building looks like a Jets uniform. You said that uh, was the Hess headquarters in New York? Yeah. They still are. They, they have still a headquarters up there? Um, I, they may have switched that by now, uh, but you know, they, uh, John Hess and his family still live there and a, a good number of executives are still up there. Uh, yeah. But yeah, their their operations up there have all been divested. They're they're strictly strictly an ENP company now. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, green carpet that's an interesting look <laughs> to say the least. It, so. it, it, it actually is cool. Like when you have that with like they had wood all over the walls. I mean, dark wood and green. It it, it looked like a, like a huge law firm. <laughs> it brought everything together. <laughs> Every, it tied it all together, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, funny. The, the yeah. wood on the walls and and the the conference table and the, and the, the executive conference table is like amazing. You know, it's just it was a cool it was a cool like old school New York office. You know. Yeah. But yeah. So um, just to f- finish the story. So you know, we we came out of Hess in 2015 and put it. We had a we had a great. Uh, we've always had great technical talents. We had a great technical team, and we just started like okay, let's let's turn this into like software. Uh, so we spent. It actually takes a long time to go from something that works once to something that will work every time. Uh, that's the trick with with any kind of software business. Yeah. So it probably took us about two years, and we we were fortunate. We signed on some great great customers, and and got to try uh, implementing our software in lots of basins. So we tried Gas Plays in the Appalachian, and we've done Canada, and now we've done Argentina. Uh, so it's been it's been a surreal experience uh, for the last the last five years, and now now that we've been around long enough, we're now into our second downturn, uh, which I'm I'm not particularly proud of, but it is what it is, right? They happen frequently now, huh? Yeah, yeah this time though, we can't go in the office and commiserate. Uh, we have to, you know, we have to we have to like do it over a Zoom call. We have to do it over Zoom calls and. Uh, and now if I need technical support during a meeting, I call my 10 year old daughter or, or son, you know, like, Hey, the zoom's not working. Can you help me out? It's like my eight year old, they, another classes have zoom calls once a week. And my eight year old put a photoshopped picture of our dog on the background and his teacher's like, how'd you do that? And he took a picture of the app, circled it, and then changed that picture to his background. It's like, man, these kids, man, these eight, 10 year olds, they know how to work things. <laughs> I mean, one very funny story and then we'll get back to business. But uh, um, the other day I was at the bottom of the stairs and, and like any man, I don't want to walk up the stairs. I want to <laughs> like, so I'm yelling up there for my wife, Aaron, Aaron, are you up there, Aaron? You know, <laughs> and my daughter pokes her head. She opens the door of the bedroom where they're they do their Zoom classes now, and she pokes her head around. She's like, "Daddy, I'm on a Zoom call." <laughs> I was like, "Wow, the shoe is most definitely on the other foot." It's like, you, that you used shut, to be me. Like, you shut the hell up! I'm on a Zoom call. I'm right on here. a Zoom call, Daddy. I mean, come on, you know. This is important business you don't just, going you on. You don't just stand at the bottom of the stairs at nine thirty and yell. I'm like, "Wow, this is reprimanded what by your kid now, man. The tables have turned." Yeah, the shoes on the other foot for sure. So. Remind me, man, when, uh, jog my memory a little bit about how Novi, you know, how, how, how it got started and kind of your transition from 
uh, corporate world to identifying an opportunity. And we can talk about how you started Novi and what the company looks like today compared to back then. Yeah, so um, we we're very fortunate that Hess has took the position that they did, which was to sponsor sponsor us, and they really wanted us to to generalize the software because they I think they felt and I think they were right. Uh, if it's a successful software product, they're not going to have to support this forever. Like if they wanted to do it internally, they would just do it internally uh, as opposed to. Uh, supporting a, a company like Novi, uh, they want us to get on our feet and kick us out the door. And, and like when your son or daughter turns 18, you know, hey, it's time for you to go to college. And after that, it's time for you to get a job and make your own living. Um, so th- so we were fortunate they took that position. And, and as a result, we got a great start uh, working with a large scale uh, project with them in the Williston. And that helped us tremendously. Uh, out of the gate. And I may butcher this, but you guys are like full, like more like life cycle, well economics. Yeah, we, we do basically everything before you put the bit in the dirt, everything you can do to optimize what might happen in the future. That's what, that's what we do. So buy the right asset, uh, plan, uh, plan development of that asset the right way, optimize return on your capital. So everything, everything you can do before the bit goes in the dirt, that's what we focus on helping companies, uh, optimize. Um, and then our markets expanded a bit. Uh, so instead of just doing that for operators, we also do that for any investor. Uh, so optimizing return on capital is really our calling card as opposed to only optimizing uh, individual assets for, for uh, individual oil companies. Uh, so we, we've, uh, we've definitely <laughs> ventured out, if you will. Can you open, can you unpack that a little bit? So helping out investors to get a return on their capital, how do you guys actually help an investor? So we started, we started with, um, you know, Investors, let, let's just take private equity sponsors as an example, right? Because it's a fairly common thing to happen. You know, as private equity sponsor, we'll sponsor a management team. They'll pay their GNA for some period of time, and they'll tell them go find something. Mm-hmm. So then the the management team will go find something to buy, and they'll bring it back, and they'll and then ultimately the PE sponsor decides, do I want to sponsor this investment or not? So you get a capital commitment, and then the capital commitment means you just have a license to hunt and then when you find something that you think is good then they have to make the decision so what what is the pe sponsor using to determine if this management team has actually found something that they can make money on long term i mean those guys need to make a two or three x return uh, on at a minimum to keep their investors happy uh, so how do they know uh, they're able to do that so so we started with the op- the larger scale operators, you know, the Hesses of the world that are operating large scale assets. They benefited most from things like completions optimization and those sorts of things because they're drilling at a, at a big scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but we realized pretty quickly that buying the right asset was actually really important. Like there's only so much polish you can put on a turd. Uh, if it's a turd, it's a turd and you can just make it a little bit better, uh, but it, you can't make it great. So if you buy the right asset to begin with, it's much, much easier to make it great. You've got a lot more rock to work with, it's much better quality rock. And, and you can, with with some simple moves here and there, uh, which our software makes pretty obvious, you can you can you can greatly enhance the returns. I think buying the right thing is really important. And that's the way we can help uh, PE sponsors and then also banks. I mean, there's this whole universe of reserves-based lenders. I mean, they've been in the news a lot. They're usually very behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. but like reserves-based lending is now coming to the forefront because a lot of these companies are going through redeterminations and they're not gonna make it. And so now the banks are gonna end up owning 
some chunk uh, of, of the oil and gas patch. Yeah, I think there's a big article either yesterday or the day before talking about banks becoming operators of yeah. assets. And it's funny when, when I don't know, a few weeks ago, the talk of bailout packages for American EMPs started coming up. I made a comment on Twitter. I said, this isn't EMPs getting bailed out. This is banks. And some people argued that banks didn't have that much exposure to oil and gas. It's like, you look at these RBLs. There's a lot of credit facilities open. And you brought up a good point that uh, redeterminations are coming up and some of these guys are getting the rug pulled out from under them. And yep. it's, um, you know, just... The entire capital structure of oil and gas right now is going, it's in limbo right now. Mm -hmm. And so I could see where a product like uh, Novi would be valuable to multiple different parties and figuring out how we move forward. Yep. So, you know, for you guys, when you first started the business, I mean, you didn't have any intentions of assisting capital groups and investors, did you? Um, I, I wasn't sure. Uh, I, I knew our software helped operators make better decisions. So we focused on that. I, I always thought any business I've ever run, I'm always like, let just be good at one thing first. And then you can, you know, start trying to be good at more things or you can try to start broadening your market or selling to different market segments. So I knew we had a market segment of ENP companies operating large scale assets. And there were plenty of those for us to go talk to uh, out of the gate. Uh, and then ultimately that led us as we were around longer and more people heard of us, you know, we would have customers challenge us or we, I'd talk to people at conferences and they'd say, well, why don't you do this? You could just do a simple, just simple extension of what you're already doing. So over time, more and more of that happened. And that was really what connected us directly into uh, the series of use cases around PE sponsors and PE sponsored companies that are looking for assets that led us to A&D. Once you get to A&D, uh, who do you think is loaning the billions of dollars? Uh, it's some of it is PE sponsors, some of it is direct pension funds investing, uh, and some of it is reserve-based lending. Uh, but, but ultimately, banks and credit institutions are providing all this capital. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you guys have astutely pointed out in your various social media outlets, the industry has not survived without external capital. It hasn't made money consistently. Mm -hmm. Now, some of that's due to crazy price fluctuations, um, but mm -hmm. those are pretty normal uh, in the history of oil and gas, right? So yeah. uh, over time, you've got to be able to, you've got to be able to stand up on your own without, without external capital, right? Yeah. And so now a lot of these, a lot of these EMP companies are like, well, the banks aren't going to loan us any, they're going to bail us out like they did in 2016. So maybe if the bank ends up possessing, uh, repossessing the asset, then ultimately, like you said, it's it's a bank bailout. Yeah. If, if there is a government bailout, it's ultimately a bank bailout. Yeah, I agree. And it's not even that, I think at this point, it's not even that banks don't want to lend, even if they wanted to. I don't know if they, you know, they can't. Um, I just, I don't think that it makes sense for them, but you brought up a good point talking about commodity prices falling and look, oil is the most volatile commodity in the world, right? If you're going to run a business that is dependent on oil, you should figure out a way that's sustainable to where you can mitigate those low price environments because it's going to happen yep. at some point. So, um, you know, just being able to, every time it fluctuates, everybody's so just surprised. Oh my God. <laughs> it happens. I'm used to it. <laughs> like clockwork too. <laughs> I mean, you know, what we're seeing now, obviously <clears throat> the 2000, 
16 era crash. Um, you know, I, I think what's interesting about that is ever since then, you know, we've been operating in anywhere from, you know, $50, $70 price range, but things never really recovered, right? OFS has still been at, you know, marginal cost operations. They haven't been profiting. And so all these shell companies have been struggling even with downward pressure on service companies and the industry just kind of never has recovered from that downturn and now you get this you know strike of covid and pricing war and everything on top of that just you know kind of cherry on on top but i think that you know both the financial institutions the operators everyone involved has to figure out new ways to actually produce free cash flow and make money right so it's actually kind of a good place for y'all to be in yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there are three use cases that have come to the, to the forefront for us. So one of them is capital rebalancing. So like, it's not capital allocation anymore. It's I already allocated my capital, right? And now I've got to reallocate my capital uh, mm. quick. Yeah, uh, and and many companies have announced multiple cuts now uh, to their to their capital budget. So like, okay, now you have to make that real. How are you going to do that? Yeah, so let's let's talk about that a little bit because everyone, I mean, they're turning to capex, right? <clears throat> and if an EMP is cutting capex, well, it's probably going to come in the form of cutting rigs, stacking rigs, and so that's why you see your rig count coming down. Um, but they're having to make those decisions fast, right? I mean, these are decisions that are having to be made over a couple weeks' time. Yep. So that's that brings a lot of challenges in itself because it's not about allocating capital now. Now it's about restructuring how it's spent. So I can see that bringing up a lot of problems. Yeah, I mean, let, let, let's say you're you're going to spend a billion bucks uh, developing asset A, and now you have half a billion. Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to cut out all Wolf Camp B development? Are you going to cut out Wolf Camp B and C? And what is the long what is the long term implication of doing that on your reserves, on your drilling inventory? You know, because now you just halved the number of wells in your inventory. If you have the number of wells in your inventory, what happens to your reserves? You go to half, mm -hmm. right? What happens to your reserve-based lending if you cut your reserves in half, right? Margin yeah. call. So it, 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 there's there's no good alternatives. So, so you're you're basically selecting the least bad of an, a lot of bad options with whatever uh, capex you're going to put into play. There's a lot um, of implications for whatever decision that you yeah. make, right? I mean, yeah, it's easy just to say, hey, we're going to stack rigs and not drill so many wells. But okay, what? what does that cause? You know, what's the cause and effect of that? Yep. And then just think like all the infrastructure that you have in place, say that you're going to drill 20 wells and now you're only drilling 10. So now your cost just went up for the infrastructure. So there's a lot of, it's not just as easy as saying we're going to stack rigs and cut our budget. There's a lot that goes into that. One of the things that we've, we've talked about multiple times on the, on the show is that if we were to go into an EMP today and say, Hey, give us a list of like your 10 most profitable or 10 least profitable wells, they'll say, Hey, give me two weeks. And it's something that they can't normally do with some of the tools that they traditionally have, right? And so then you, you think about an environment like this where commodity prices crash from $50, $60 oil down to, you know, 20s, low, low 20s, you're having to make some very, very big decisions about not only CapEx, not only OpEx, not only your people, you know, it's the future of the business, whether this is going to survive or not, and you need the right tools to be able to, to figure out where to divert your attentions and where to make the right cuts, right? Mm -hmm. So do you guys help with that? Like, can you help an EMP understand their costs per well on a per well basis better? 
Yeah, I mean, so we're less focused on the operational side. There are there are plenty of companies that do focus on on that problem. Mm -hmm. We we focus on spending spending money on the right things to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so like before you drill, yeah, before the yeah. The so like, dirt, what, yeah. What, what what do I ex you know? Okay, so here's my billion dollar capital plan. Here's my half billion dollar plan, and then and then for the half billion dollar plan, here's here's fifty ways that I could potentially do this, right? So the workflows to determine what the outcome is likely to be for each of those 50 ways that you might spend that half a billion dollars, those workflows are, are based on spreadsheets and manual analysis and hand-selected analog wells mm -hmm. and all these sorts of things. And all of those things are fine, but none of those things scale. So, so last year, uh, most operators uh, did reductions in force. You know, the industry was under heavy pressure to be profitable, and that was at fifty or fifty-five dollars uh, a barrel. Now it's far worse. Yeah, um, but they already cut a lot of staff last year, and, and from my point of view, they cut it down to the bare minimum number of people yeah. that are required to do the workflows that exist mm -hmm. today. Right now, they're now they're faced with having to reallocate capital, and there's just there's not enough time to do it properly with the team's sizes that they have right now pull all the levers, without right? tooling. They yeah. need tooling to do it, better tools, and that's what we are, right? So we're the tool that allows you to build each of those 50 scenarios in like an afternoon and then analyze. We produce all the data and then, and then publish it, and then the customer can then analyze the data very quickly. The hard part is producing data that describes what the outcome is likely to be for each one of those 50 scenarios. Yeah. So our thesis is really simple. If you give people a tool that allows them to develop the scenarios quickly, they're going to be able, the same size team will be able to look at 10, 20 X, the number of scenarios that they would ordinarily be able to look at. And their chances of reaching the best possible outcome is better if they have more possible outcomes. Yeah. Right? So, so let's unpack that. So are you allowing the end user to set a certain number of scenarios and then certain parameters for those scenarios and then just press a button and it's like, here's, here's all the different options. Here's the, your 10 best cases. Here's your 10 worst cases. Here's the, whatever your scenario parameters are, right? Yeah, so one of our, our biggest new software releases is a product called Prediction Engine, and that's exactly what it's designed to do. So the users can design their scenarios. So they can say, okay, I'm gonna take this acreage and I'm gonna develop two horizons, uh, Wolf Camp A and Third Bone, right? If you're on the, let's just assume we're on the Delaware side here. Uh, well, then they can analyze things like, well, what if I added Wolf Camp B? What if I added Wolf Camp C? Or what if I did Wolf Camp B and C two years from now? So I cut the capital now, but if I do that now, I've now I've got a parent-child development versus uh, versus a co-development. And every, everybody's learned in the industry that co-development usually means you get better results per well. But but you can't you can't do co-development now um, because the capital is so constrained. So you have to be able to run this scenario. Let's add Wolf Camp B. Let's add Wolf Camp B and C. Let's add Wolf Camp B in two years, Wolf Camp C in three years. So like as fast as they can think of the scenarios they want to try, our software allows them to model each of those scenarios, run it, and then see what the outcomes would be. Uh, that's, 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 what we're, that's what we're trying to go after. So whatever questions they have, they can, they can model them, run them in an afternoon, 
get back the results and then determine uh, among all those outcomes, you know, which, which outcome is, is best. And this is both for uh, new drills and for say like PDP acquisitions, but also we said before, before the bit hits the dirt. So I'm assuming new drills only, right? <clears throat> well, so one other thing I wanted to tell you guys about too, is we've, we've, we've just now released after uh, about a year of development, we've just released our PDP forecasting module. So, there's, there's two aspects to, to PDP. One of them is in an acquisition scenario where you, you need to value uh, that production. And of course, that production declines every month. So you have to have an accurate model for forecasting it. And then you have to have an economic model that prescribes some sort of value. So that's one reason why you need it. The other reason why you need it is if you can do forecasting uh, in, in an automated way, which we can, because we use machines and algorithms and computers to mm -hmm. do it essentially, uh, you can completely automate the forecast. So if you can automate the forecast, whatever number of engineers are sitting there doing decline curve analysis and rate transient analysis and all the classic engineering workflows for, uh, for um, determining what the future production of, of an existing producing well will be, all of those things are obviated. You don't need any of that. Uh, so our, our, so we are now actually pushing into not just the pre-drill space, but also the post-drill space, but we're still specifically looking at forecasting, except in this case, we're looking at how can we automate the forecast so that it doesn't take as many engineers to produce something that is equal or better quality mm -hmm. more and by quality, I mean accurate. Um, and then the other angle to it is if I'm looking to acquire existing producing wells, what is it worth? And, and how does that value change at $20 WTI, 25, 30, 40, et cetera. Uh, so we can we now allow customers to model uh, those sorts of scenarios as well. Interesting. So we just released that, or we're just about to release that at the end of this month. We're very, very excited about so that. On that topic, so if you if we were to all be looking at a uh, an asset, right, and we would bring in 10 oil and gas guys, we were all asked them to write down what the value of this would be, you're going to get 10 different answers. So how are you guys approaching the valuation piece? Yeah, I mean, we allow them, we allow customers to value it any way that they want. So we produce at forward estimates of production, right? And mm -hmm. then from the production estimates, uh, we can calculate costs. So like what are my lease operation expense and other other costs? That's all configurable by the customer. Um, <clears throat> so all, all of the operational costs, carry away costs, takeaway costs, service infrastructure, all of that's all of that's factored in. Mm -hmm. uh, so essentially if you if you take both of those back to a net present value, the net present value of the future revenue, uh, from the production, which we're accurately forecasting, and the net present value of the negative cash flow stream, which are your costs, subtract one from the other, and you have a value for each well. Uh, that would that would be a net present value way to to approach it. Uh, so that's 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 the methodology that that we use. And then from there, you can you know you can apply some sort of risk factor. So if you're the buyer, you're going to risk the hell out of it. And if you're the seller, you're going to be like, no way, this isn't risky at all. <laughs> of course. Uh, you know, like, it's, not risk, it's not risky and oil prices are always going up. <laughs> this is guaranteed, bro. Just uh, sign here. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so, um, so the, the, those are the two aspects of the way we look at it. But so so valuing PDP is is uh, um, one one challenge that we overcome. The other one when you're valuing an asset is you have to look at so of the acreage that I'm applying, the proven undeveloped acreage, uh, which is really your upside, right? How do you value that? 
Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to you have to look at different ways you might develop that unproven acreage. Like, well, am I going to do a three zone development, a two zone development? Am I going to use this completion design or that? So everyone has different ways of doing that. Uh, but our workflow, the advantage to it is it's accurate and it takes minutes to develop a scenario. So you can look at hundreds of scenarios. Uh, so we just published a study on our blog that we did of the uh, partially jagged peak deal, oh, yeah. which is really interesting because the deal was done at 55 uh, WTI. Uh, so we, we, we just took another look at that deal and reevaluated at 25, which when that deal was done in October of last year, nobody thought 25, that's not even possible. Yeah. I mean, most, most people who have hedges, if they have three-way collars, they don't even go down to 25 because like <laughs> nobody thought it was, <laughs> nobody thought it was possible. Yeah. And here, here we are. Right. So, um, so we just, we just took another look uh, at that deal. And one of the interesting things you, you'll see when, when these deals get done, especially the larger deals, they, they, publish like, hey, this is what we looked at. We looked at these completion designs and we looked at this many zones to develop. And there's usually like one or two options. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, if I were going to spend $2.3 billion of Parsley shareholder money, uh, I would probably want more than two options. Like I'd probably want 200 options and mm -hmm. I would want to know the return on every one of those options so that we can, we can have some certainty around uh, you can which, have an entire matrix of possibilities. Yeah, think of right? it like a like a like a Monte Carlo simulation of possible outcomes. So, yeah. like, I put in this much capital. Here's my here's the outcomes that are available to me, and then here's my relative uh, level of uncertainty. Yeah. <clears throat> so, like, ba especially now, baking uncertainty into the analysis is is actually pretty vital. So, like, you can do a net present value analysis, but what's interesting is how how confident are you that you're going to get. Um, you're going to get 400, 400 million dollars in NPV if you do this deal. How confident are you? 50% confident? Are you 80% confident? Uh, so that's one of the other things we've added to to our our entire product suite is the ability for user to select confidence bands. And if you select confidence bands, you now know for every prediction made. Predictions are usually made at P50, right? Um, but you, companies don't always use the P50 prediction. Sometimes they'll use P40, so they have a higher level of confidence but at the end of the day we make it easy for them to add that stuff and if you have confidence interval data alongside the prediction data the wider the bands the more uncertain you are mm -hmm. so it gives you the ability to actually quantify uh the uncertainty as well yeah i mean if you can put out a bunch of options you know spread out across normal distribution say hey here's your standard deviation here's how much confidence you know we have in it and that kind of gives you an idea of low range on the bands to high range, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can make a more accurate decision based on different scenarios. I mean, it makes yeah, perfect sense. And your your willingness to accept risk today, I would argue should be, if it isn't, it should be different than your willingness to accept risk in October of last year. Yeah. Because because the thing about risk is if you're if you're only drill if you're gonna drill two hundred wells and now you're only gonna drill fifty, all fifty of those need to come in. If they don't one of them, one or two bad wells could really affect the overall outcome. Whereas yeah. if you're going to drill 200 wells, right, or 150 wells or whatever the number is, the more wells you drill, the more the more uh, the likelihood of one well being bad, another well being mm -hmm. good. They just sort of cancel each other out and you sort of get 
you know, get the return you thought you were going to get. Yeah. But the less wells you drill, the more certain you need to be in, or, in order that, uh, that you, you know, one, one terrible well doesn't sink the entire portfolio. You just got to reduce the number of terrible wells like, yeah. as close to zero as possible. Yeah. It's about not losing money, right? You want to, you want to mitigate how much you actually lose. One thing I want to talk about, um, kind of going back to one of your points earlier, and you know, this isn't just unique to Novi, but it's um, something that I believe that we're going to see in the oil business over the next five years is you talked about these EMPs, they've already pulled all their levers. You know, you think about when an EMP, when we kind of get in a low price environment, two things off the top of my head that they go, they go to OFS companies and say, Hey, we need you to come down on the prices. So we've already seen that, you know, across the board, they're asking OFS to give them a 20% discount and OFS doesn't have any margin to give Mm -hmm. them a 20% discount and they lay off operational, um, staff, you know, so they start layoffs. Well, we've already had the layoffs, already had the discounts on OFS. So EMPs have to figure out how to give their, their staff the right tools to be more, it's like really punch above their weight, right? Mm -hmm. So how can we not only become more efficient, but just analyze and do so much more, you know, get 10 times the, 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 um, end result than what we'd be to be able to normally. And I think that it's going to come through digital solutions like Novi, you know, you have a team of engineers doing something manually, you know, doing, um, you know, type curve analysis, okay, well, if we can use some type of automation algorithms and spit out 500 scenarios, that just helps an EMP team to become more efficient to be able to scale across assets without increasing their GNA or their overhead. And I don't think that's, you know, that's not even unique to Novi. I mean, Novi, you're going to be one tool in a basket, right? I think that you're going to have to see this in many different aspects, but that's just the way that the oil and gas business is going towards. Yeah, you're going to have to be able to do a whole lot more, like a step change more with significantly less than they've ever been able to, to, to use before. And so I think, yeah, I think the lower head count, lower GNA for, for operators is going to be the future moving forward, well, which I was talking to a buddy over at um, Hillcorp mm-hmm. and he said, you know, the one thing that's always been special about Hillcorp is he's like, like, I don't want to talk shit about anyone, but you compare one of our engineers to an engineer over at Chevron and our engineers do 10 times the work. And that's just kind of what's expected from you at Hillcorp. And that's why we've been successful because we've been able to acquire and scale assets, but we just have like, there's a lot expected from you. Um, but you know, I think, okay, Hillcorp's been able to do that through a manual process of just, Hey, you got to work your ass off and do more than what's expected at major companies. But now you got to figure out, okay, we have to find real solutions that don't include, you know, more manual labor, more man hours, you know, it's like, what if you, what if you worked harder at working smarter? Maybe it's not a, an, a one or the other, you know, it's, it's used tools like this, but also still have the work ethic of Hillcorp. You know, what can you actually be able to accomplish? Yeah. Like I think in jujitsu right now, it's like using leverage. How do you, you know, you take a person that's five foot, 130 pounds and you put him up against a 300 pounder and he's going to beat up that 300 pounder because he's using leverage and just fighting smarter. Right. So you have to be able to do that in the oil space. It's like, how can we work smarter? Yeah, I, th- I think the, um, I mean, if there's any possible benefit to this this you know, supply and demand dislocation that we're, we're dealing with right now, 
it, it may be that it becomes uh, an agent provocateur to push the industry towards automation. Like any workflow that that is a rote task, like the decline curve analysis or whatever, there's not a lot of in engineering being done there, right? It's just a task. Mm -hmm. So anything that's just like a task that's driven by data, that, that should totally be a candidate for automation, whether it's us or somebody else, right? Yeah. So if you if, if I were the CEO of a large oil company and I'm looking across and I'm thinking about what do my people do every day? Uh, I would be looking at the, the workflows that are rote tasks and I would be I would try to eliminate I would turn over as much of that work as I could to machines and algorithms and have my people then be able to work, like have engineers do actual engineering. Yeah. Like <laughs> there's no engineering of a decline curve of an existing well. There's, you're just a, it's just a guess heaped on top of a bunch of historical data, right? Yeah. So like machines are really good at making guesses heaped on top, top of historical <laughs> yeah, that's data. What, that's what they're meant for. So like yeah. let them do that, you know, and then, and then take those engineers and have them do actual engineering. Uh, Cause I think that's where we're gonna find you know, the machines aren't going to find breakthroughs for us. They're just going to automate things that are rote tasks and, and relatively simple and driven by historical data. That's, yeah. that's what they're really good at. Agreed. So let the machines do that work. And then the people, uh, let them let them do the actual engineering work. That's where the, that's where the human brain is best adapted, right? Yeah. Human brain's not good at looking at a million rows of data and saying, oh, the conclusion is X, you yeah. know, from the million rows of data. But they're really good at taking concepts putting together different concepts and then figuring out, oh, the, the common thread is this. Like mm -hmm. machines actually aren't very good at that. Absolutely. I mean, they're learning, it's, it's an advancing area, uh, but like healthcare outcomes and those sorts of things, uh, it's, it's not, that's a very hard or complex problem, but like automating a PDP forecast is not, I mean, I don't want to belittle what we've done, but it's not that difficult. Yeah. It's difficult to be really good at it and be very consistent and reliable. That's the part that actually takes the engineering on our side. Mm -hmm. But once you've got that, uh, it's just automated. You yeah. know? And that's not work that I don't think it's I don't think it's work that's particularly fulfilling or satisfying for any human being to do day in and day out. Yeah. Number one. And number two, it doesn't add a lot of value. It's just something it's just a task you have to do to be a company that sells oil for a living, <laughs> yeah, right? Absolutely. Uh, those things, all of that stuff. Uh, like monitoring pump rates on on wells, or or uh, you know telling an engineer when he needs to pay attention to uh, to a frack while it's going on, like those are things that machines machines should do. Yeah. Um, so that that's kind of way I generally feel about it. I don't. I don't. It's not really about you know reducing headcount. It's about allowing engineers to do engineering and, and turning rote tasks over to the machines. With the rapidly changing price environment in oil and gas, it's important to stay lean and flexible. And that's why Auburn Energy Management is offering full-scale upstream asset operating and technical advisory services to workout firms, financial institutions, and investors of distressed oil and gas assets. The best part, these services are offered without the requirement of the asset owner giving up working interest or royalty interest in the actual asset. This allows Auburn to eliminate conflict or competition across their clients and allows the asset owner to capture as much value and upside as possible. This fee-based, flexible GNA model provides a cost-focused approach to asset management on a scalable platform that has allowed Auburn and parent company Sierra Hamilton to execute $1.5 billion in capital projects across every major producing basin in the lower 48, Alaska, and the Gulf of Mexico. Their large network of field personnel, all the way up to the C-suite executives, allows them to be basin agnostic and help clients wherever they might be. 
quick example, a credit fund recently took ownership of an asset after a restructuring settlement, operate the asset on behalf and reduce the GNA expenses for this fund by 70%. If you need a cost-effective solution to manage your assets, visit Auburn Energy Management at auburn-energy.com or click the link in the show notes below. You know, since you're our first guest that we've recorded with since the uh, pandemic, you know, how are you guys dealing? Well, first the COVID pandemic and then our own internal industry pandemic with the pricing war, you know, from a startup uh, founder perspective, how are you guys navigating these waters? I mean, you know, we're kind of going into uncharted territory where we have an economic crisis with the pandemic layered over on top of it, you know, what kind of challenges has that brought up for you guys earlier? You said, you know, you can't even go in the, in the office and meet with the team, you know, communicating with zoom and how are you guys kind of navigating and, um, adapting to, you know, what looks like, you know, the, the pricing war, you know, I estimate that we're going to be by the end of the year, $30, you know, it's still going to be a low price environment, but how are you guys adapting to all of this? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, obviously we're using we're using a lot of uh, uh, communications like Zoom that helps that helps tremendously, and th- those the state of the art there has actually advanced quite a bit. I mean, yeah. when we started Novi five years ago, Zoom I didn't even I don't think Zoom existed. No, yeah, it's like WebEx and you know, I, I think they had started, but I don't, yeah. they definitely weren't a household name. Yeah, yeah, now now it's like they're talking about it on like Jimmy Fallon, you know, like he's talking about Zoom calls and this and that. I'm like, <laughs> wow, this is like word has entered the vocabulary of every person in America all of yeah, a sudden. It became, it became, it's almost become like a verb. It's yeah. you know, like Google it. It's like, let's, let's zoom. Zoom it. Um, yeah. That's funny. Yeah. I've known about zoom for so long, so long. Well, but like even look like a few years ago, we used to use Google Hangouts. Like yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't, Zoom wasn't the clear winner yeah. in that space. Right. So, um, yeah. What happened to WebEx? Like, yeah, WebEx was, was really the leader. And I think, what Zoom really did right was they made it super easy to get on, just like a one-click thing. Yep. And then if you install, it's a one-click button that installs and opens up. And maybe that's it. Yeah, there, was another, there was another, there was another talking point. Google, Google Hangouts was hard. Remember, it was always a pain in the ass to get on Google Hangouts. And then once you finally did get on, it... Yeah, it was unreliable. It's, it's much better than it used to be. Um, but it's still, I don't think it's as easy as Zoom is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyways, get back to your question, uh, which was <laughs> not about Zoom. Zoom analysis. <laughs> now, that, now that we've solved the world's collaboration problems, we'll, we'll move back into oil and gas. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think for any <clears throat> for any entrepreneur that's in in this space, you have you have to find the things about your product that that either drive efficiency, uh, reduce cost, or increase returns. Uh, those things are hyper hyper important things. Uh, so. You know, we're we're redoing our product content on our website to to explain like how can our software, which costs money, we can't do it for free. How can we, how can you use our software to do to help you in one of those three areas? Mm-hmm. Uh, so capital reallocation. You know, we think there's going to be uh, very interesting opportunities in the A and D space. I mean, the price of oil goes down, the price you value PDPs and prove it undevelops at is substantially less. So. Yeah. Smart money enters the space. Uh, companies with strong balance sheets get even stronger uh, at these times, and they're going to be looking at those at deals. And then the, the the PDP forecasting workload for us, automating that. So that's an automation story, right? So automation, efficiency, uh, and improved improved results. So you've got to find the things that your software can do that help companies in in, in those areas. Uh, that's that's kind of that's what we've done, and I would. 
stipulate that anyone, any any of my peers in the industry are doing <clears throat> are doing the same the same thing. To yeah. kind of get a, a feel of of the environment that you guys are operating in. We've, we've talked to multiple founders over the past few weeks. We've got mixed things. We've, we've heard from certain companies that, hey, we're able to greatly um, cut cost or uh, increase efficiency for them. And so we're still moving forward with new demos and whatnot. Uh, and then we've heard on the other side that, hey, absolutely everything has dried up. We're just completely not focusing any time or effort on any sales or marketing efforts. And we're just focusing on really internal R&D and just building out either the existing product or, or new versions of that product. Where do you you guys kind of see kind of the broader energy tech environment yeah i mean i, <clears throat> I think that's a i think that's really a leadership question right so the, the teams the leaders of these companies have to make make a determination wh where they where they want to live right so you you can you can pull all the way back into the shell <clears throat> during times like this or 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 you can choose to over invest in certain areas so some some company leaders will, will over invest in customer relationship management right which maybe when you're growing really fast you don't necessarily do the best job you could do uh, hiring because uh, you're trying to do it fast and hiring if you do it fast often leads to mistakes uh, and you don't put the right people in front of the right customers so you can retrench and and really make sure you keep your base uh, of, of customers uh, the, the other strategy um, the other strategy is you can see it as an opportunity to grab market share uh, so you can you can price aggressively uh, during these timeframes. I mean, there is a price the market will pay uh, mm -hmm. for for the software because the efficiency gains are fairly well documented uh, at this point from from implementing these these technologies. So there's some point at which the price point will resonate. So if you decide to make your price point low enough, this might be an opportunity to go out and grab market share. Uh, and I in in our in my personal experience and you know kind of what we're trying to do. Uh, at Novi is strike a balance between those those three poles in the tent, right? Uh, the tricky part is when when the with things the environment the way it is, if you guess incorrectly, the penalty could be you're dead. Yeah. Uh, if you guess correctly, you you could actually you could actually like pole vault yourself forward uh, during during a time like this. So you can't. There's certain things you can't control. Like I can't control market adoption, right? That yeah. just takes some time. Uh, I can't control whether CEOs are, are now now see this dislocation as an opportunity to, okay, now I'm going to go all digital because I have to, and it's no longer it's no longer an option. I need to do this to survive. Mm -hmm. uh, you you can't control things like that, uh, but what you can control are what the things that you decide to point your team in the direction of. Um, so I would argue you have, you know, you have those three choices that I outlined, and you have to kind of pick. You shouldn't only do one. Uh, you shouldn't only do the other. You've got to do a combination of three. Um, you have to determine. I mean, to some degree, it depends on how good your balance sheet is, right? Like, what can you afford to do? Also, enters uh, enters into the equation. So, I mean, if you're if you're funded by by a third party financial partner, you, you may have different options uh, yeah. than than companies that that aren't. So, to some degree, it depends on how bullish they are. Uh, not only on your prospects, but the overall, you know, is is the rising tide going to lift all ships in digital oil field, or is or is the or is the tide going to stay where it is, or is it going to recede? So they're going to have some view on that uh, as well. So some of the options uh, that are available to you, to some companies, may not be available to others. But if you've just loaded up on on capital, you may have flexibility that that others don't. Yeah. 
um, you know, like part, I, I used Parsley as an example earlier, you know, uh, Parsley bought Jagged Peak and it was a big acquisition, $2.3 billion, um, but it was all stock. So the price that Parsley actually paid sunk along with Parsley's stock. They didn't take on a ton of debt mm-hmm. uh, to make to make the deal happen. So they may have had a view that going forward that maybe the price is going to fall and I'm going to insulate my risk by paying with stock instead of paying with uh, with cash. And to some degree, the buyer or the sell the seller of the asset has something to do with has something to do with that as well. And it, it's kind of the same thing in software, right? Like. Our ability to prosper now depends on decisions we actually made six or 12 months ago about what we were going to focus our R&D efforts on. So for us, we were fortunate uh, because we focused on on uh, building software that helps with capital rebalancing. We focused on building software that helps drive uh, fast R and uh, A&D analysis, and we built software that helps automate uh, rote task uh, forecasting. So we, we made three we made some decisions there back in really January of last year that are now putting us in really good position. Uh, so that's great for us. That that makes us very bullish on grabbing market share. Yeah, uh, right absolutely. Now. Um, but other other companies without uh, that that made different decisions. Maybe they bet that oil is going to stay at sixty. So I'm going to build products that are really valuable at sixty. Maybe those products aren't so valuable at thirty. So then they've got to pivot in a different way to respond to what's going on. Yeah, it's actually a really interesting point to bring up, you know, strategy of what you're building and kind of the necessities of, you know, a lot of changes. We were talking, who were we talking to? Oh, it was on one of our live shows on YouTube the other day, Jake, talking about um, kind of like the sweet spot for technology. You know, someone said, I, I really think that the sweet spot for digital tech is like 60 to $80 price range. Um, you know, because oil is not so expensive where people or EMPs are just like, fuck it, we'll drill another well. But it's also not just kind of crashing and burning to where they don't have time to explore and adopt new technology. But from a technology founder's perspective, if you build those products that are essential or valuable in a low price environment, you know, you could have to either go that way or you're building stuff that's valuable at $60. I never really thought about it from that angle you know as a founder you need to kind of be cognizant of what product you're building and where you're at in the market what's valuable at that time so i've seen both of those with whenever we launched gds where it was uh oil had just dropped from over a hundred dollars a barrel down to about 85 and everybody was just like oh my god we're losing so much money and now to look back and be like man if we if we could just get Dear Lord, baby Jesus, if you could just have like $45 oil, I think we'd all be happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, before we wrap this up, uh, I want to tell everyone about what we're building at Digital Wildcatters with the bullpen. Because um, John's actually going yeah, by to... By the time this gets released, uh, yeah, the bullpen will be launched. The bullpen will be launched. So yeah. once this episode's out, um, we're going to have the bullpen up on our website. And you'll be able to... What is, what is the bullpen? I guess I got to give the pitch for the bullpen now. So all the oil and gas tech startups are going to have their own profile page on Digital Wildcatters. So you'll be able to go there. Um, we're shooting in-house walkthrough demos of the platform. So that's what I was about to tell you. If you're interested in OV Labs, you'll be able to go on... Um, uh, digital wildcatters website and check out john's presentation of the software um podcast will be embedded in there you'll be able to see any articles they've been featured in yeah, both updates episodes. yeah both episodes in john's case yeah uh, any of the press releases that we have for them on the site will also be on there so yeah. it'll really be like 
Novi Central. Like everything you possibly could find yeah. out about Novi. Obviously, it's not a full replacement for their website. So working, if you want to find out more information, go there. Working on an option to where you can uh, inquire straight through our website to Novi. So if you're interested in it, check them out on the bullpen. Um, how else can they reach you, John? NoviLabs.com, uh, John at NoviLabs.com. There you go. You got the man's information. So reach out to him if you need anything. John, appreciate you coming on the show again, man. Yeah, thanks, guys. Good to see you again. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for making the drive. All right, guys, you know what to do. Uh, we actually, so we, I guess our, uh, uh, our review link uh, went down for a little while. We didn't know that. Uh, it's live again, so rate this podcast forward slash digital wildcatters. Go leave us a rating and review. We've had some uh, trolls who have decided to leave us a whole bunch of one-star reviews. We know who they are are super annoying but it hurts our ratings so if you could please help us combat the trolls uh and leave us a, a podcast review also um i don't think we've announced this but we actually have so we we as a joke we launched merch uh on the website and so we've got bro peck hats which is really our response to opec yeah uh so we've got those bad boys started a movement our own oil cartel and then we got our free cash flow jogger sweatpants so They've been selling out. Been doing Which both completely started as a joke, and then we set it up, set up the store online, and then orders just started flying in. And so now <laughs> we're in the merch game, producing bro pack hats and free cash flow joggers. So go check those out. Uh, and uh, yeah, hope you guys enjoyed the episode. We'll catch you on the next one. Cut, 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 cut.